the big opportunity for Brazil to be important country worldwide related to Brazilian biomass. When I look at the climate attack, I have no doubt that Silicon Valley or U.S. in the West world will lead the solutions to change the way you do transportation, the way you build the materials, the way you do industries, etc. The big question is who will you lead the solution that comes from the nature? And that's the big potential of Brazil. How you can take advantage of Amazon, Bioma, and the way to do that is not using the metrics and the systems and the playbook from Silicon Valley, for instance, is something nobody has done before. It's very hard, but that's something we have a clear differential and the playbook has to be created. Welcome to the J-Curve, a podcast about tech ecosystem builders in Latin America with me, Olga Maslikova. My goal with the J-Curve is to make the stories of LATAM founders and funders accessible for global community. Every other week, I interview spectacular entrepreneurs and investors who share their most valuable lessons of building, growing, and funding some of the most successful tech companies in Latin America. My guest today is Ferson Lambrano, Brazilian entrepreneur and investor, chairman of the board of G2D Investments and GP Investments, and the member of the boards of Centauro, GPA Advisors, Spice Private Equity, and The Craftery. He is also a board member of several nonprofit entities, such as MASP, Museum of Art in Sao Paulo. Person serves as a mentor for Endeavor, Big Bets, and Amaz, with a particular focus on supporting entrepreneurship in the Amazon region. Additionally, he actively invests in deep tech initiatives in the USA, UK, and Brazil through his family office, Volpini Ventures. Ferson, it's a pleasure to have you as my guest. Welcome to the J-Curve. Thank you, Alva. Thank you for the invitation. It's nice to be here in New York to meet you. Before we dive into your background and growth investing, there are a couple of things that popped up during my research on LinkedIn and on your blog, which I was really curious about and I wanted to have a conversation about. And the first one is, if I pronounce that correctly, Cineasta Frustado, Frustrated <laughs> Filmmaker. <laughs> Can you please elaborate a little bit on that? What it means for you and why is it on your blog? <laughs> when I was a teenager, my dream is to be a movie maker, a director. I was very inspired by Brazilian movement in the 60s from Glauber Rocha, Cinema Novo, which motto was a camera in the hand and idea on the head. I was very excited with that. But then I decided to go to engineering and put away the idea to be a movie maker, which probably was not a great idea for many reasons, especially for financial reasons. And after engineering, I decided to pursue a career in business, which gave me the chance to work with people. And at the end of the day, I felt that I did my movies in the real world. And frustrated because I was a movie maker with never really did a movie. I know that you have a passion for art and you're supporting a lot of art projects in Brazil. So that creative side of you has never disappeared. It evolved and found a translation into alternative industries. The other thing that I found super interesting is your take on digitization as a way to reduce social difference. 
I wonder if you can elaborate on this idea and maybe put it into a broader perspective of society and environment for that sake. I think the society we live was built by the Industrial Revolution. And this is very Newtonian, very material thing. If you look what mankind built and we feel very proud about, and you ask, it's good for who? Maybe for the womankind. But if you look at all the cities like New York or London or Sao Paulo or ever, it's not good for the birds, not good for the trees. I think digitalization is an opportunity mankind will have to reveal that concept, to return back to the basics. I can have a library, the most important library in the world, without having to build it. Instead of that building, eventually have trees. On the other hand, Digitalization, say, quantum computer, will give us a capabilities to understand things we not understand. What do you think are the biggest opportunities in terms of digitalization? I think the first thing is to use the most important assets we have, the brain of the people. Now take a country like Brazil, 220 million people. How much of the brain of the people we use? 5%? 3%? I think the digitalization give a chance that we can give all the same opportunity. People normally talk about equality. Oh, no equality in the world. There are no equality in the nature. If you go to a group of lions or birds, they are not equal. But they start for the same point. They start for the same basic. I think digitalization could give every person in the world the capability to start at the same level. There are no reason why a young person in India or Brazil not see the best class of mathematics from Harvard, from Stanford, in a cell phone. That, I think, is a great, great, great opportunity we have to spread the mankind knowledge for everybody, it gives a chance and opportunity to everybody be better. If you not give that opportunity, we are losing the most important asset we have. And I think that is more important for emerging market countries than the developing countries. When I did my research about the landscape and ecosystem in Brazil, what mind-blowing was that there's a huge penetration of smartphones. Literally everyone has a smartphone. Schools are a luxury, not available, especially in the remote, like suburban parts of the country. So what do you think is the biggest constraint towards minimizing this gap between people who are educated and people who are not educated, given the opportunities that digitization brings? I think it's a mindset. It's a simple question of mindset. You talk about everybody has a smartphone. I used to have a telecom company back in the 90s, 2000. Let me tell you, the connection between the Brazilian people and mobile phones are amazing. Then we have the infrastructure for that. I think the problem is mindset, is believe that our asset is the people. I think that's the first point. And the second point is, why not? Why not? Yeah, I think this emerging markets thing that people don't want to take risk because they're afraid to fail. 
and they're going to persist in the status quo. Even if that failure means actually no failure because there's no downside of trying and get more educated using the resources that digitization has to offer. I want to move forward to your investing career. So you've been investing for almost three decades, since 1998 as a part of GP Investimentos. How did the investment landscape change since you've done your first investment back then? First of all, when we started, Brazil was basically a country which companies belongs to families. I think that's the first phase. Then by the end of the 90s come the privatizations, and we change a little bit the landscape. Then mid of 2000, we start to have IPOs, public market available. It's not as available as U.S., but we start to have this movement. And take this process from the family companies to the IPO market, what happens is change of mindset and people start to sell companies and to make money and start to invest and start to understand more about professional management of companies. I think this from the beginning of the 90s to 2005. And after that, you start to have these new companies creating from scratch based on start of the process of digitalization, which of course we had in the 90s with the internet phase, but after 2005 was different. I have digitalization, which gives people a chance to understand how to use technology to improve their business or to create business from scratch. The big constraint we have in the emerging market as a whole is lack of universities, lack of development of technology. We have a lot of people doing research in universities, but we don't have the connection between these people and the market, I think it was necessary for a country the size of Brazil. That is the big constraint we have today for the next phase. At the same time, I was mind blown with how rapidly the tech ecosystem was developing over the course of the last five to seven years and how fast the company scaled from zero to one. When I was preparing for this episode, I read, again, something that you said, that having unicorns is great, but it's not even remotely enough to ensure the sustainability of the market growth. So what do you think should be done besides research and besides wider availability of high-quality research universities? that could ensure the sustainability of growth of tech ecosystem from where we are today? I said I prefer camels instead of unicorns because business takes long to be developed, many phases, and then to be resistant. Sometimes unicorns happen very fast, doesn't allow the company to be prepared for the good and bad moments. I think Brazil has a good understanding of that and good examples of that. I don't think that is a problem. I really believe that when you go to digital world, the technology is much more important or is very important. And when we are developing enables, it's quite easy because you, you just put some technology to change the way people do things. But in growth, in sustainability, 
you need to really have technology embedded in the companies to guarantee that we are doing something more built to last. I really believe that point is the most important one. So you think that the next stage of the evolution of the market, if we think about that in terms of stages, would be the deep tech? Yeah, and give more protagonism to the tech people. Sometimes I talk with people doing a company, oh, well, and the technology, oh, I, we hire IT guys. Come on, guys. You cannot hire IT guys. The IT guy has to be the founder. <laughs> That's to be the founder. Okay, you're good in business. You, you understand the model. You have a great idea. But put a founder side by side as you to guarantee you go technical stronger. I think that is something important. If you go to digitalization, part of this means technology. Then people in technology need to be important in the company. Otherwise, I don't believe it could be in long-term successful company. My personal big interest is deep tech companies in industries like agriculture, like biotech. And whenever I'm talking to the founders who are building yet another digital app, and I'm asking, why are you guys doing that? When it's obvious that the importance of tech is growing, the common answer to that is because, oh, they have no idea how hard it is to raise if you're building something that has a longer R&D cycle in Brazil. Nobody wants to invest in R&D. People want to make sure that you bring the product to the market in like six, eight months since the date of investments. So how would you advise to the founders who are interested in building tech-intensive companies but require capital investment upfront? Brazil, for decades, generate return in a day-by-day investments. People have a very short-term way to think about investments. I think it's a big challenge for deep tech in Brazil. If you are capable to build something deep tech, you probably need to look for people who specialize in that, and probably you need to look that money outside of the country. I think our ecosystem is not prepared to invest in deep tech as the necessity of the country. And again, is a mindset. I love this point, and I want to build on that a little bit. So from that perspective, what are some of the industries or some of the products that you are excited about where Brazil and Brazilian founders have the capability to produce global companies, world-class companies that can catch the attention of global world-class investors? The big opportunity for Brazil to be important country worldwide relate to biomas, the Brazilian biomas. When I look at the climate tech, I have no doubt that Silicon Valley or U.S. in the West world will lead the solutions to change the way you do transportation, the way you build the materials, the way you do industries, etc. The big question is who will you lead the solution that comes from the nature? And that's the big potential of Brazil. How you can take advantage of Amazon, Bioma, and the way to do that is not using the metrics and the systems and the playbook from Silicon Valley, for instance. It's something nobody has done before. It's very hard, but needs to be done. It's a three-year project. 
maybe 10 years prior, 15 years prior. But that's something we have a clear differential and the playbook has to be created and has to be created for people who understand the solutions are inside the biomas, not outside the biomas. Needs to be humble and say, we don't understand. We need to learn and need to learn from the plants, the animals, the Indians live there and try to find a way to make it happen. Of course, it's difficult. Of course, it's probably take years to have results. But I believe there are money worldwide with disposition to give opportunity to people who really spend time and effort to look for that sun to growl. I think that is the big opportunity to have in deep tech. Of course, we can do things in medicine, we can do things in materials, we can do any other things. But to take advantage of our bioma, or that's the richness, and create a way to make this climate tech based in nature, probably Brazil never had all the opportunity in the history to make a difference. I love what you said, that that's the space where Brazilian founders, Brazilian entrepreneurs can actually create the playbook. Because what's been done until now, it's this of that. It's this of that, but localized. But what you are talking about has a way bigger impact on the global scale, in addition to what Amazon has to offer in terms of carbon credits. For instance, carbon is necessary. And there are many people doing projects. I decided to back a guy who do projects, but at the same time, try to create conditions for low-cost projects in small areas or even tokenize the CO2 to sell to other pockets in the world. Maybe today people don't differentiate that company to the traditional company who sell CO2 to Shell, to McDonald's, etc. But in long term, if you bring that mentality to how we can lower the cost, make it effective, make it global, and protect the forest, that will make a difference. To be pioneer is tough. California is today the way it is because some pioneers went there in the 19th century and died in that journey and make a state in the U.S., which is more than the majority of the countries in the world in terms of economy, pioneers. We not build that without pioneers. In California, you also had, well, you had the research universities, just like you mentioned. You had a government support to a certain extent through various agencies like DARPA. You had this military research commercialization exchange that I think it's not happening yet in Brazil. Yeah, but all this in California exists because the pioneers went there to make it happen. And I think Brazilians need to embrace Amazon with heart and mind. I always say to people that in 2000, when the internet blew up, we realize that we don't have entrepreneurship movement in Brazil. And that was the reason Endeavor was created. 
you went to the South Summit, we have 24,000 people talking entrepreneurship there. It happens in 20 years. And it happens because entrepreneurs, executives, give time, give mentorship for people to develop this ecosystem. I believe Amazon needs the same. The time Brazilians embraced Amazon, not with money. I don't talk about money. I don't talk about investment. I talk about attention, time dedication, love. That point could change completely the way Amazon opportunity happened. The same way entrepreneurship happened 20 years ago. It's harder. I know it's harder, but it's much bigger. Is much more important. I wanted to talk a little bit about your investment decision-making framework and how it evolved. Do you have this incredible perspective of making investment decisions in traditional sectors that are more operational, as well as the sectors that require very specific tech expertise? So can you walk me through your mental framework in terms of how you evaluate companies, how you evaluate founders. What is it that matters to you to make the decision to support or reject a certain company? First of all, the reason we involve G2D to invest in tech companies is because we believe what have been done all of our life, which is acquire companies, change culture, etc., 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 to continue to be done needs to use digitalization together with our playbook. What we learned in the 90s was entrepreneur and ventures are the most important thing. And what we can provide to this guy in the certain point of his journey is knowledge about life. We never change. We can go a thousand years ago, two thousand years ago. The principle of life are the same. One day, the venture will be a medium company, a big company, and the pros will be the same of every company. Then this is very important for us. It is a great guy, but it's completely close or egocentric. Very difficult to invest in that kind of person. Second is technology. I don't want to be involved as an investor in G2D in companies with technology is not the core, the core of the business. Because as I said before, I think that is the pillar of the digital companies. And third, the size of the market. We don't care much if we have 20%, 2%, 3%, 4%. What I'd like to have is a bunch of private companies we believe and we can help and a founder which is open to receive a gray hair advice in the right moment. That's the way we do the things when we invest in ventures. When we spoke before, and I told you that I really want to interview you, and you're like, why? I'm not your typical tech entrepreneur investor profile. And now you just answered the whole question saying that every company is impacted by digitization and essentially, every company is becoming a tech company. Now, I had a follow-on question, two, actually. One is about the market, and the second one 
is about entrepreneurial persona. In Silicon Valley, and I think for that sake in the U.S., the common perception is that, oh, founders create markets. You know, founders of Uber created the market for Uber. Founders of Airbnb created the market for Airbnb. How would you think about that? Do they actually create the markets or they repurpose the existing markets? I don't think that anyone created markets. I think that when you look at the Newtonian area, which is the, the industrial revolution to up today, is a market of few people. When you go to digital, the majority of things is for all this exchange from Newtonian to digital allowed you to make things which embrace much more people. In that sense, they create the market, but it's not true. The market was there. For instance, you take these people very successful in Brazil who do delivery at home. Their business is based in unemployment. They are bad for this? No. There are no employment in the country. What it means that in Newtonian moment of our lives, we are not capable to give to the people all they could have because it's physical. <laughs> And the digital couldn't tap that gap. I think as simple as that. If you go to New York, I remember the first time I, I used an Uber in 2012, I said, oh, the reason it has this Uber is because the tax in New York are crap. <laughs> then you can have a good car. And in London, it's the other way around. The tax is great, but they use Uber because it's inexpensive. <laughs> yeah, Black Cab was like really expensive. Exactly. Yeah. It's nice, it's beautiful, it's expensive, expensive. Then in reality, you are tapping gaps in the market. The other follow-on question is about the entrepreneurial profile. How do you test the founders on this ability to process feedback, ability to accept the guidance, accept the advice, ability to change their mind. In 30 years, what we have been doing most is hiring people and hiring people in top positions. My experience will show that you need to understand and to be trained to understand people. People who come to GP normally come from MBA. It's not a differentiation. The differentiation comes from how long-term view they have about life. To work in private equity in a country as Brazil, you need to be a long-term vision about your life. If you're a short-term person, no matter if you are great, it's not for that to work. I think it's the same as founders. You have to evaluate the person, their behavior, the way they think about life, how they treat the wife, how they treat the partners, this kind of things. Do you have any favorite interview question? Yes, I okay. have. What is that? What's your strong point? And normally people answer quickly. And the next I ask is, what's your weak point? And that question, that question is great because <laughs> you learn a lot about people. I don't give you the tip, but that one relationship between the first answer and the second answer. It depends on that relationship, you know a lot. But this is my secret sauce. That's a lot about <laughs> psychology right here. You mentioned endeavor and mentorship. I want to talk a little bit about that. Do you have mentors that had the most profound impact on your life? And if you do, who those mentors are? My father, first. My father was a salesman. And he, he teach me that 
the most important thing for a salesman is to receive a call. Someone <laughs> remind he exists. The second is, no matter what you're selling, you need to go to the point of sales, the end of the chain, and to guarantee that the people there like you. Otherwise, they can sell another item for another people. And the third is the salesman has to make his agenda every day. Own agenda is our stuff. And I think entrepreneurs have this problem. They have to build their own agenda. Second, I think it's better to Peter. The guy I started my career was my boss in law as Americanas. Better to give me a chance to improve myself. He received a, a rock and he allowed the time and space to develop them. His example, how you give time for someone to develop, is one of the most important lessons I had. Third, a teacher who turns a, a, a guru in business in Brazil called Vicente Falcone, who makes the total quality control and could translate this to the day-by-day -day of companies and teach people that if you don't have problems, you have a much bigger problem. In life, if you want to be successful, you need to create your own problems in order to increase your capability to develop. I have so many old people who help me a lot. But nowadays, I have many, many young guys, guys between 20 and 30, which I have a regular conversation. As a mentees or as mentors? As a mentees. But not true. They think I'm a mentor, but it's not true. <laughs> what did you learn from some I, of your younger I, mentees? I, I learned that if you want to be in the contemporaneity, you need to look the world through the eyes of people from 2030s. That people are really living a world. And to understand the world, you need to look through their eyes. What I give to them is my knowledge about life, what they give to me is life. And I feel like a Dracula, kind of vampire. <laughs> who I vamp love the comparison. <laughs> who, who take a little bit of the blood of the younger people, and they are my big mentors nowadays. What's the best way to build relationships with you as a mentor? In reality, I have some nowadays. Many of them are starting their business, and they came to me, or sometimes I call them cold calls, and create a kind of connection, woman connection, not business connection, because I don't care about money in that relationship. What I care really, if they have anger for what I have to give to them, and if they have something to give to me. And it's a pleasure to do that. What is your top advice to your mentees? If there is such thing as a top advice from you that you give? I don't believe in short term. I don't believe in nobody thinking short term. I don't believe in, oh, we need to do this round to do the next round. I think that's this consequence of looking to do the right thing at the right moment. I really like to deal with people who are fundamentalist. My advice is always in that direction has the right partner, has to hire the right people, take care about cash flow, try to grow fast, but with plan B, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. As again, the beauty of life is ups and downs. Great life when you 
your cycle is long, you enjoy, you have problems, you enjoy difficult life when you have uh, very short cycles and up and go, up and go, up and go. That's terrible. What you have to do is try to make the cycles long, but everybody has problems. Everybody has bad moments. And if someone doesn't have these bad problems, don't trust that person. I want to touch on one more topic before we move to the rapid fire, and that's the board governance. A lot of founders have huge problems with building effective boards, high-performing boards. You've been on boards like, for a substantial part of your business life. So what are some of the tips that you could share in terms of approach towards building the boards? And what is the right timing in the life cycle of the company when you want to build the board? First of all, I think the CEO position the most difficult position in the world because you have a bunch of people down you and a lot of people up you, investors, creditors, board members, whatever. The main aspect for me, the board, is to empower the CEO. To empower the CEO, you need to be capable to say no, to say wrong. At the same time, understand that's a single person in a very difficult position. I think board has to be sweet and sour at the same time, in equilibrium. The right moment, as soon as you can attract people who really help you, normally help to say no. Board is not a place to have a great stars. Board is a place to have people with different skills which are ready to say no and are ready to say, you need help, I give you help. One example I think is a great example is Steve Jobs. Apple is the most successful company in the world today. I believe you saw that they launched a saving account. I have to say a long time that if JP Morgan has a competitor, it's Apple. They have capability to be competitive with JP Morgan. People trust, etc. How this business was built? It was built on a garage of an incredible guy, poet, who created these beautiful devices, and they bought part of him <laughs> for his own company. Years after he was more mature, the board of Apple hired him back, and his great return to the company trillion of value. I think that's a great example. Exactly. Apple is the way it is because of geniality of the Steve Jobs, but the board, wherever who they are, people capable to fire him and people capable to bring him back. back. All right. I'm going to move to the rapid fire. I'm going to ask you five short questions, and I'll appreciate your immediate responses. Let's dive right in. The first question is, what's one book or piece of content every founder should read and why? I think the book about Sam Walton, Made in USA, his own biography. It's a fascinating book. There's also a really good podcast, which is like six-hour, two-part podcast on Acquired, when they go deep into first the family history of Sam Walton and then into the business of Walmart. 
and how they failed to innovate and how they succeeded in innovation. It's fascinating. The book itself is marvelous. Second question, you've been married for as long as I've been alive, which is 36 plus years. What's the secret of a happy marriage, an enduring marriage? I'm totally young. She's totally young. We complement ourselves. And I think the main reason we are together for so long is so, is so happy is because both of us believe it's an endeavor. It's an endeavor to build together. And you have to do this every day. And you have to take consideration that in marriage, you are building the most important partnership in life because you generate your kids. And their kids are the most important product of your life. There are no other business you can create or things you can involve more important than that. Some people spend a lot of time thinking how to buy a car and don't spend the same time and effort to think about who they marry. What was the hardest leadership decision that you had to take so far? Is where I spend my time. Unfortunately, I have so many things I like to do. I envy people who do just one thing. I have a friend who likes surf. He does just surf. <laughs> I think he's the most happy person in the world because he doesn't have options and just surf. And that's not my case. Can you give an example of the trade-off that you had to make recently in terms of where you don't spend your time? I think it's a daily effort to divide myself between my interests, my business, my mentorship, etc. You love art. You support art. What was the moment when you fell in love with art, if there was a single moment? And what kind of art was that? I like all kinds of arts, to be very honest. Everything in the world was created by God. The only one thing was created by man is art. No matter what kind of art we talk about, we talk a representation of the nature created by God. You find art in the caves 100,000 years ago. It's part of the mankind. What I love in art is this. is the only thing you really create to add to the God creation. Have you always had that belief since you were a kid? I always liked art, as I remember. I always go to the museum, dance, theater. To be very honest, remind me now. <laughs> when I was very young, people asking me, what do you want to be in life? I say, I want to be an actor. Do you have any I favorite artists? Favorite artists? That's a difficult question. You love difficult questions. Yeah, from that's, what that, that's a really... <laughs> Is that a real difficult question? I say one, Fellini. I think Fellini, as Igmar Bergman and Woody Allen, yeah. they are very similar. They are in different parts of the world, but they talk about the same thing, life, the beauty of life. Woody Allen talks about New York, Igmar Bergman about Sweden, and Fellini about Italy, which is much closer to... The soul of a Brazilian guy. I rationally love New York. So to me, watching Woody Allen movies and how he manages to capture the spirits, the visual perception of the city in virtually every movie is fascinating. Exactly. And the last question would be, my favorite, I have a rating. If you were an alcoholic beverage, okay. which beverage would you be and why? Water. I drink some wine because I have friends and because I want to be social. But I love water. How would you define yourself in the context of water then? 
<laughs> Since you would be transparent, okay, fluid, vital. That's beautiful. Thank you, Fersen. It was such a pleasure to have this conversation. It's a pleasure. It's a good chat. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the J Curve. It was such a pleasure to have Fersen as my guest. To learn more about him, go to gp-investments.com. And to hear more from us, follow me on Instagram at Olga Masliko with KH. Subscribe to our channel on YouTube at the J Curve Podcast and leave us a review on Spotify. Thank you for being with me today.